Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm Regina Brett. One of the favorite parts of my day is when I go to Facebook and discover another slice of joy by Karen Sandstrom. Just type in hashtag tiny morning sketch in your search engine, and you'll end up on a magic carpet ride that takes you back to being five years old, six years old, seven, where the entire world was a wonderland and still is. Every day, Karen embraces her imagination, or maybe she just sets free on paper all the critters running around in her brain, like the elephant picking sparkleberries, or the banjo playing bear, or a dog named Henry, who is the BFF to a little girl named Hope, who notices and celebrates the beauty in every moment. By day, Karen is the Director of Communications for the Cleveland Institute of Art. By moonlight, she's an illustrator. She's also a freelance writer and the owner of Clover, the cutest hedgehog in Cleveland. Karen's also a former plain dealer colleague of mine. And we're going to talk about creating a life you love on paper and in person. Karen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Regina. It's great to be here. So what did you draw today? Um, this morning, I drew a picture of Hope, who is the uh, main character in a picture book project that I'm working on called Hope Notices. Sometimes I'm working on the book itself and the illustrations in the book. And then sometimes I just draw, I do a tiny morning sketch of Hope in some situation that I imagined her. So today it was actually Hope feeling sad because I had realized that I had actually never drawn Hope feeling sad and because she generally isn't uh but the relationship she has with her dog henry who's comforting her in the illustration is really what it's about it's not really about her feeling sad it's about the it's about what the 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 dog brings to her in that moment so these characters that you draw are they really running around in your kind of your imagination how do you kind of conjure them up and then bring them out onto paper yeah you know so um they come in different ways i would say that they emerge from from imagination but also from the discipline of a regular drawing practice so it's that advice that you have heard that all creative people hear if they if they bring any seriousness to the work which is get your butt in the chair and do the work and you make room for Uh, material to emerge when you do that. And so um, I draw every day or virtually every day. And sometimes the characters come out of a wish to create a character. Sometimes they come out of a wish to create a mood or make an experiment with uh, drawing. It just depends. So they, they come, but they come because I invite them in through sitting down with a pencil. You know, I love that you sit down because somebody once told me you have to put like your seatbelt on when you write. Like you cannot get out of the chair for coffee or chocolate or to go find your phone or whatever. So you kind of do that as an artist. You really like lock yourself in. Well, I do. Although as a as a writer, I also came across that sort of um, discipline. And I I actually do the opposite. I do sit down every morning. I get up very early and I um, and I sit down and I do this, but I also do, I get up a lot and I get up and I get a drink and I sit down again. And, and I do that in part because my body's getting older and crotchetier and I need to move around a little more. And also it's a way in which drawing is a little bit different than writing, which is you, it's helpful to get some physical distance 
periodically on what you've done so that you can look at it. So, but yeah, it's, it is a regular, it's a regular thing. Well, and it's also bold because you share it right away. Yeah, for better or worse. I don't know if that's a good idea or not. But <laughs> I love it personally. <laughs> I was, you know, I think, um, you know this, Regina, from being in publishing, publishing trains you to publish. It trains you, being a reporter trains you to publish, being a columnist trains you to publish, and being in newspapers in particular trains you to turn your work out to the world at an earlier phase than a lot of people have to do in other kinds of creativity. And I just got, I just got used to that. And so when I started drawing regularly, it was actually before, way before Facebook. And it was when people had blogs more often and the kind of sketching community would share things on blogs. And, you know, people share work that is very unprofessional looking or very, finished and professional or anywhere in between. So I don't, I don't worry about it too much. I just, I just put it out there, you know? Well, I think you're right. There is a gift in having been a journalist for a few decades, both of us, in that you have a deadline and it doesn't matter if you have writer's block or inspiration or anything. You've got a piece of paper you got to fill. Right. That's right. You know, I've talked about it as a blessing and a curse because um, there are things about that inclination to be regular and, fast that they can kind of hamper you. There's times when it makes sense to just hold on to something and come back to it and see see the ways that it needs to be refined. But I don't think writer's block or creative blocks are as much of a thing for journalists and former journalists. You know, actors get stage fright. I tell people I get page fright when I have that blank page. It's like thrilling and terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to get a new journal that's empty, and yet I'm so afraid I'm going to ruin it by by touching a pen to the page. Yeah, I um I get um a little well of anxiety when I want to draw. I know I want to draw, but I haven't yet figured out what it is I'm going to draw. And I get that thing that you're that you're describing. So, as an artist, do you figure it out in your head first, or does your hand figure it out as you draw? I think of it as a conversation. It is neither of those things. I have to have some sort of something to hang my hat on. So for instance, it might be, I've been looking at cool flower imagery or flower inspiration, and I want to use some colors. So I'm going to start doing something with flowers. But the cool thing about drawing or the experience that I like about the drawing uh, practice is that conversation that happens between while you're engaging with the material. So you start to draw the flowers and then um, your imagination starts taking hold and tells you something else to put down there. And now you have a different composition and you're reacting to that. That is the thing that is pleasurable. That, that process is what's pleasurable about doing it. It's also the kind of the high wire act because sometimes it goes awry, but it is like the exciting, it's the exciting part. Well, I want to share something you posted on your, your blog, the 37 stages of making a drawing. I'm just going to share a few. One, I have a half-baked idea for a drawing. Two, I will bake it. Three, I am drawing. It has possibilities. Four, still drawing. Something kind of cool is happening, but I will probably ruin it. Five, I think it needs a lot there, but that might ruin it. And just that those first five, it's like to get that on paper and out of your brain. I think every creative person has that like 
I want to, and I'm scared the whole time. Yeah. The whole time. Right. It's, it's a writer thing. I think it's a, it's a, an actor thing and um, musicians. Yeah. And then you go on and you write number 12 was, is it done? I think it's done. 13. It is absolutely not done for crying out loud. Draw more. 14. Now is it done? 15. It could be done-ish. I love that. Done-ish. So how do you know when a drawing is done? That is a great question. And I think when you arrive at the place where you consistently know that your drawings are done, that's one of the markers of, of achievement or professionalism with it. The inclination for people who aren't as far along in the process is to either stop way short of done, which is what I used to do, or to way overdo it, and um, which is a more recent phenomenon. And the answer is you really, you really don't know because it's art and because, you know, you get to say when it's done. That's the thing. There's no like done police that come in and say that isn't as finished as it could be, unless, unless you're doing it for a client and and then they might. But, um, but if you're making art for yourself, you get to, you get to decide when it's satisfying enough to you and as you develop taste, the satisfying to you part, it becomes really, really important. You, you start to please yourself. So, yeah. So those done police, I think we call them editors when we were in journalism. That's right. <laughs> They're looking at the clock saying, it's got to be done because there's a deadline here. Because it's, yeah, 10 o'clock or whatever. Uh-huh. So back to your list. So thir- uh, 16, looks pretty good. I'll show spouse. 17, spouse loves it, says it's done. Hmm. Spouse is not an artist. Approval does not count, but do I love it? Your husband, Carlo, is he helpful in in giving you feedback or does he just say everything's great? You know what? He's really kind is what he is. And so he, he has a genuine love and affection for the work. So he's never just saying, or at least almost never just saying it's great, but he usually genuinely thinks it's great. And on the rare occasions when he looks at something and hesitates, I know, oh, I got something to take care of there. Um, (laughs) That's a nice gentle edit. (laughs) Yes. And so he's kind of what I want in spousal approval. Like he's not too picky. He gives me that first kind of like pat on the back that he feels genuinely. And that's what I need. And then if I, if I need a harder edit, I take it to one of my art school friends or, you know, somebody who's going to give it a, a more critical eye. Well, and I also love that you write about that critical eye in your list. 28, I should delete it so no one else can see it. 29, don't be stupid. 30, not stupid. It's the worst thing I've ever drawn. I got to tell you, Karen, every time I wrote a story, I think it's great, it's great. And it's like, it's awful, it's awful. It's this roller coaster that goes up and down, up and down. Yeah, yeah. You don't get off of the roller coaster. You keep getting on. We have to, I think, right? That's, that is the job is to, is to keep getting on and to keep going because it is the, and it's what I learned at the Cleveland Institute of Art when I was a student there, to keep going and to not let dismay come in and knock you off. You know, it's understandable to feel dissatisfied, but you really can't indulge that or you don't progress. Well, and I think it's so helpful that you wrote this on paper. I'm going to end up your list with 31. I think I'll make a mental inventory of all my terrible work. 32, three hours later, I'm the worst person who ever lived, except for the fastest. 33, I still want to draw. 34, but I have no ideas. 35, I will think of one. 
36, I have a half-baked idea, and finally, I will bake it. That's a book right there. I mean, it's so beautiful that you go through all that, and then you still decide, I'm going to bake this. You don't give up. Yeah. I don't know if you feel this way. All the artists and writers in my life, and, you know, I'm blessed to know so many of them, they all operate out of an inability to stop doing it. It's just not even a, it's just not even a question. Yeah. I think it haunts you. I know that when I'm not writing, I've got this restlessness in me that like is nagging at me. It's like haunting me. Like, what are you doing? Where are you? I call it the wolf at the door. I had, I have a friend, he has a lot of skills. One of which is um, he, he writes poetry and he, and I used to occasionally talk about the anxiety about not writing, the anxiety about writing things that don't stand up to one's own level of, of you know. Standards. Yeah. yeah, standards. And and his response to that would often be, I just can't, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And then he would he would get feeling anxious. And I would say to him, the only way to keep that wolf away from your door is right. It doesn't matter. Just just do it. You're going to feel bad until the moment that you sit down and start focusing on the work. It's the only way. You know, there's some beautiful letters that Van Gogh wrote to his brother, and he talks about that desperation. And the only way through it is to just keep painting. And yeah. I tell myself, just keep writing. If you have a lot of doubt, write through it. Don't give yeah. up. You just keep writing. Yeah. Now, you also did the illustrations for Just Breathe, a beautiful book about meditation and mindfulness. How was that experience for you to do that? It was a really great and unusual experience. Um, Eliza Wing, who uh, was once upon a time publisher at Cleveland.com in the time before, the time before everything, everything is the time before now, but she reached out to me. Uh, I I knew her a little bit, but not very well. And she reached out. uh, She had this a book in mind about mindfulness meditation and it's a practice of hers that has she's been doing for years and years and uh, she had a solid book really already completed and she knew that she wanted it illustrated very simply and she she had well-developed ideas so she said could you just do I just have this little drawing that I that I want you to do for it so I said sure and I really thought at the time I'll knock this out and, you know, I'll knock this out in a few days of working after work. Like I just thought it would be just a few days. And it actually turned out to be more like, I don't know, seven months or something that worked (laughs) back and forth. Um, Now it wasn't solid seven months, but it was lots of back and forth about the imagery. And as it turned out, then the layout of the book itself, it looks like a very simple, clean layout, but a lot of thinking went into it. And um, I did the layout of it. And it was great because I've told her this, that I had her voice talking to me in my head about meditation and mindfulness the whole time that I was working on this, which is beautiful. She's got a a very calm, calming demeanor and um, a lot of wisdom. And so that was a beautiful partnership. And and we became really, truly friends over the course of the creation of that book. It was just amazing. It was great. It's a beautiful book. It's very calming, just the feather on the front. It yeah. You want to just kind of flow gently through your life. And boy, do we need it now. I mean, you know, um, coronavirus hits and everybody, uh, even people who have uh, uh, mindfulness practices, I think were knocked off kilter. So I think you're right. 
Yeah. I want to pause for just a minute. We're already at the halfway mark. I want to thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to Karen Sandstrom. You can find Karen at karensandstrom.com. I'll also have her information on my website, reginabrett.com. You can also buy her artwork on Etsy. She's got some beautiful prints. And definitely follow her hashtag tiny morning sketch. Oh, just beautiful. So Karen, let's talk about some of these other detours, you know, because I think every life experience shapes you, not just as a person, but in all the art you do, the writing you do. And I always ask people to kind of share their early detours. And you shared one with me in the email about your family. Tell us a little bit about what your family was like and what happened. Yeah, I grew up in Bay Village, Ohio, and I was the youngest in a um, family of four children and three older brothers. You know my brother, Eric, who worked with him. He was another journalist. And my brother, uh, Mark, and my the youngest of them was uh, Greg, who was four years older than me. And he died in a car accident in uh, 1985. It probably doesn't even need to be said that it was a completely rocking um, experience for everybody in our family. I would say particularly my parents and watching my parents um, respond to losing a child was devastating. And, you know, we all would say my brothers and I had our own ways of handling it and struggling with it. And then on top of that, it was watching how my parents were doing with it and being kind of helpless to help them through it. And what it, what it did in my life. So I was 24 when this, when this happened. And for me, it was the turning point. It was really kind of the first massive disruption that I had experienced. And for me, it took away the ability to live in that world where you believe that you are immortal or that people that you care about are are immortal. And once that's gone, I mean, it's just, it doesn't come back. You know, it's, it's a whole new, it's a before and after situation. So yeah, it was, it was huge. You know, that's really powerful that you say that there's a before and after world. My husband lost his mom when he was 21. And there was like this timeline that really just shattered the family in a way that they never quite got their footing back. They got it differently, but there's a loss that never, they never stopped hurting from. Yeah, that's right. You don't get back to it, to what it was before. And I think with help, you can get into a great new place without help. You can land in some pretty dark waters. And, you know, I think it was especially hard for my, my father, um, who, didn't get help and really struggled with it. My mom had been through some other things and seemed to handle it better. And then, you know, I think the kids kind of, we all just kind of retreated to ourselves trying to figure it out. And, and, you know, we're much older now and eventually you do that, but, but it was, a, it was a fracture. You know, in your email, you said it kind of reorders your life. Mm-hmm. I have five brothers and five sisters and we're all still here, but I know the day we lose one of us, our family will never be the family it was. Like uh, it's, even though we're all in our fifties and sixties now, there's something about siblings. You have this bond that like, you know, each other's lives forever. Yeah. You know, I say that part of it is losing the witness to you, a witness to your childhood. Greg as the youngest of my brothers was so, you know, closest in age to me, he was around my world more than my other brothers. So that we had more shared territory, I would say. And there's something about 
having that that witness gone that is it's profound it's well thank you for sharing that and uh your brother eric was such a joy to work with he, his humor <laughs> yes. i'll never forget things i can't share is <laughs> <laughs> very funny really great guy yeah let's fast forward a little bit so you went into your life and you saw something in a newspaper about helping birds, which is totally like out of left field, random, but it really grabbed you. Tell us about that. So I was reading a newspaper story actually by one of our former colleagues, for, I think from before your time, but it was a story about the Medina Raptor Center uh, working with a bird. They're a, they're a nonprofit private raptor rehabilitation center in in Medina County, Ohio. And uh, it was just a feature story about the work that they were doing with this bird. And I read this story and had an inexplicable response to it. And I just thought, that is the coolest thing. I want to do that. And there was no reason, you know, for me to (laughs) respond to that urge. I had kids, you know, I had a full-time job. I didn't know where it came from, but I couldn't forget it. And so it nagged at me long enough that I finally, I kept going back and reading the story and I finally just called them and I, I looked at their, you know, I looked at their website about what it took to be a volunteer. I had zero qualifications um, for being a volunteer, but I called them and, and the woman who runs it, Laura Jordan said, come on out. And I interviewed and God knows why, but she allowed me to start working there as a volunteer, which was just beautiful. And that took you like deep into nature, which now really informs so much of your art. It does. I mean, for one thing, I learn whether it's going through birds or if you love uh, through gardening or whatever it is, whatever avenue that you take to getting to nature, there's no way to just learn about that. You learn about everything around it. So learning about the world of birds of prey teaches you about all kinds of other things and um, ecology and the ecosystem. And once you're awakened to it at that deeper level, it's, you know, the, the beautiful world around us just gets so much more beautiful and poignant and heartbreaking when things are going against it. But um, yeah, it's been, it has been such a gift, um, you know, to, to have that. And the other nudge you got, and I think it was probably always there was to do art you had a friend who had a little watercolor kit that kind of shifted things for you. Tell us. About it. Yeah. My next door neighbor, Susan, back when my art, we had kids who were friends and they were little and she was going on vacation and she showed me, she's very, she's an enthusiast. And so she took out this thing. She's all excited about this watercolor kit that she got. And it was just a beautifully made little kit. And I hadn't been doing any art for a long time. And I looked at this thing and I, I thought, I got to get one of those. And I did. I was just, I hunted it down like a dog and, um, (laughs) and it became the thing that led me to buying sketchbooks and starting a sketchbook practice um, and getting, and, you know, on the path to seriousness, I would say. Yeah. So I'm curious, how many sketchbooks do you have in your house? Oh boy. hundred. I don't know. I, I have all kinds of them. I have certain kinds that I use all the time. I have big ones. I have, I use them for different things. I, I don't know. I have shelves and shelves and shelves of them. I love yeah. how you look when you talk about them. Like they're, they're, it's like it's candy to a child. <laughs> it is candy. I mean, there's something specifically, people work in, artists work in a lot of different ways. 
And not all artists like sketchbooks, but I, I think because of my reading, my love of reading and writing, I actually love the book form and I love being able to go back and look in time at, at drawings collected in that way. So yes, I am an absolute sketchbook fetishist. So what's interesting is you didn't go into art, you went into journalism. I did. Why? Because when I was in high school, I wasn't, I wasn't a great student, but I got a lot of props for my writing. And I was on the school newspaper and I had a great advisor at school and she suggested that I look into journalism in college. And I went into, I went to Bowling Green State University and I thought, well, I'm going to declare a journalism major. If something else comes along that I like better, I'll do that. But it didn't. And um, (laughs) yeah, so I became a journalism major and went right into newspaper journalism and really loved it. I don't want to, it's as much a part of me, arguably more a part of me than, than the art is, but. And how long did you do it? I was a working journalist from 1983 until I left a plane dealer, which was at the end of 2008. Wow. Well, one of the best jobs in the newsroom you had for years is book editor. I mean, to me, it looked like a great job. You get paid to read. Like, that's like heaven. It, it was really was. Yeah. It was like, it was one of the great jobs, period. My job was to review books and to choose books to be reviewed by other great writers and put together uh, the book review section. It was just it was a fantastic job um, that I had for five years. And the only, really the only downside to it was the overwhelmingness of it. We would get 300 books a week mailed to the paper that had to be, I mean, some didn't really have to be looked at because they weren't things that we were going to review, but they had to be gone through and looked at. It was just always a sense of being behind and, you know, there's no way to actually do the job as well as you should do it because there are just too many books. So that t-shirt, so many books, so a little time, it, it, it's fine. <laughs> it's right on, yeah, yeah. So so you're a book editor, and you were great. I, I remember those years. Oh, my gosh, it was so much fun to go up to your desk and see what came in. And and then you get promoted to a position that other people might have loved, but it just wasn't your love. You know, it was the great job on paper. It was features editor. So it was the editor of the, the entire features, all the features sections at the paper it was a job I applied for and wanted I'd been doing the book editor job for a while and I thought I should move on to something else and then almost immediately I knew this was a bad mistake in large part because I couldn't do what I related to as creative work I mean management can be creative but it didn't feel like that to me. I wasn't able to write. And then as I, as I told you, like all my friends, my, my colleagues in the, in the writing ranks immediately had to regard me as their boss, which, hey, yeah, that was, that's a shift in relationships. Yeah, it it was. And I didn't, you know, I know that some people would be able to make it seamlessly. I did not make it seamlessly. So so you left to really go to that place where you, some part of you always wanted to do art. I did. So while I was book editor, we would get these great books in, but and I always found myself really distracted by books, by illustrated books, um, picture books for children, but also illustrated books for adults, books that had just random great illustrations in them. And I remember saying out loud to my friend, Connie Schultz, your friend, Connie Schultz, I remember we were standing in the book office one day and I said to Connie, 
you know, if I were going to do it all over again, I'd be a children's book illustrator. And I said it out loud like that. And sometimes I am, I don't want to sound like woo woo, but there is something about saying things out loud that come directly from your heart that I think has a transformational effect on your world. And when I said it out loud, I feel like something shifted. And it was a long time between when I said this to Connie and and who was, by the way, very gracious about encouraging my drawing as well. And way earlier than I was than I was taking it seriously, but there was something about saying it out loud that I think had an effect. So then when I was um, in a position to decide to leave the plane dealer so I could go study at the Cleveland Institute of Art, it was, it was like the path was already set down. Well, it seems like now you're living like a new dream. I mean, if you look at the whole arc of your life, it was great all along, but now it led you kind of back to that home plate. Yeah, I do. I feel that way. I think of myself as inherently a writer and an artist, illustrator, and I'm doing the things that I love in my life now. For myself, I'm working in an institution. I mean, we, I, we didn't talk about this, but I went to school as a very non-traditional student with mostly traditional students. And you talk about age-wise. I'm age-wise, right. I was, you know, in my 40s, they were 19 years old. And uh, for the most part, there were, you know, there were a few non-traditional students, but not very many. Right. And I had a, a just a fantastic experience at that school that, you know, I just really felt like I was home and um, it's, it's beautiful. I love that because it's never too late to live the life you're really called to be. That's right. Yeah. So here, we, we're going to wrap up here pretty soon, but I wonder when you think about anybody listening, that idea of creating the life that you really want to live, you've you've created it and recreated it. Anything that helped you the most to, to be able to make that shift, to leave what to others would be like, why would you leave this great job? Like what kind of things do you need to tell yourself to make that leap? Well, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this. I consider myself kind of a chicken fearful person. I have a lot of anxiety every single day, but there are things that I am not fearful about. And I knew when I left the plane dealer, which was a, a great place to work. Absolutely. You know, that in itself, those were dream jobs that we had. But I knew when I left, I did not have fear about going to school because I really wanted that knowledge. And the thing that I think is most important is to pay attention to the thing that calls you, the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning and this doesn't mean you make a career out of it necessarily. It just means that you follow that path. You pay attention to the thing that gives you joy and you figure out how to get more of it in your life. And, you know, I don't, I don't think everybody should quit their jobs and become a guitar player in a cafe or, or draw or write, you know, like the world needs more than just creative people. But I do think that if it's creativity or anything else, we don't have endless time on the planet and it's just very important to use the time you have in an intentional way, whatever it is that's giving you joy. I once heard somebody say, do what makes you feel fully alive because what the world needs is people who are fully alive. Absolutely. And it sounds like your brother that you lost has kind of been a little bit of a foot on the gas pedal for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
there was there's no tricking myself into thinking you know that this goes on forever I want to thank you Ian, for everything you do and for sharing all these detours because they really do shape us and turn us into the person we are well thank you um I know you've done a lot of that yourself and have reinvented your writing what you do as a writer a number of times too well thanks one last thing we've got to mention clover well how did you get a hedgehog my grandkids would love to have a hedgehog the first hedgehog i got was nutmeg and i got nutmeg in a trade with a friend of mine who wanted to get rid of her she wanted to re i don't want to say get rid of she wanted to rehome her um her hedgehog and i had a cat that was a stray cat that needed a home. I couldn't keep it and was intending it to give it to, to give it to a friend. So I gave her the cat and she gave me the hedgehog. And that is how I got a hedgehog. Cause I thought hedgehogs are cool. So that was my, my foray into hedgehog ownership. Although I have to tell you then Clover, Clover succeeded that hedgehog, but now another friend has Clover. So I'm no longer, you know, transparency i am no longer clover's mother so you know, you'll always be like a but I'll, i'm the godmother i like to think very godmother erin <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us um tell us the best way to connect with you on your website and social media the best way is a website which is karensandstrom.com and then i'm also i'm on facebook and i'm on instagram with just looking up my name so i have an instagram account with my first and last name and that's where I post, uh, well, both places I post the drawings, daily drawings and other work. Well, my biggest takeaway, I love that you said it out loud and it made it real. I think I need to do this sometimes is to speak it. Like I, it's all turning in there, but the words have to come out of my mouth and, and name it. I'm a big believer in whatever the metaphysical thing is, say it out loud. Yeah. Karen, let's close with your answer to this question. What is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? That's so easy. I get up early in the morning so that I have time to do the thing I love, which is drawing, before any other claims are made on my day. And I recommend whatever it is, the thing that you love to do, if you can get up early and get it done, the rest of the day will feel better and more complete. And you will be a a more whole person because you've taken care of the thing you most love to do. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Karen. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.